a bit lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Neda, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good too. Thank you very much. It's the evening for me, so I feel a bit like I'm in a... I've got horror movie lighting going on my end, but I'm pleased to see that <laughs> the sun is rising for you. <laughs> well, it's rising, but it's funny because in LA, it's a little bit overcast for us, so oh. it feels a little... A little British. dim here. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, we start the films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and tell us a bit about your work. So would you mind doing that, please? I'd love to. Uh, so I teach at uh, UCLA in writing programs, uh, which is an interdisciplinary program that serves undergraduates and graduate students. And one of the wonderful things about teaching there is that um, because of its interdisciplinary nature, I get to do a lot of different kinds of things and work on different projects that excite me. Um, there's a little bit of flexibility in that, and that has allowed me to sort of stretch my immediate areas of interest. Um, so, you know, I'm working on different projects that attend to different archives, but I guess the, the sort of uniting kind of theme for me is that I'm really interested and committed to working on um, social justice issues mm -hmm. and thinking about how the work that we do in the classroom and our research can have a larger impact. Um, what, like, uh, what directions can our work go in to have meaningful change or to inspire our students to think about the world in meaningful ways. Um, my immediate sort of uh, area of, of expertise is, of course, um, in the early modern period, and I'm interested in transnational networks, um, and I'm particularly interested in Safavid Persia and anything that relates to Safavid Persia. And Safavid Persia, just for people who might not be aware, um, is sort of the, the Persia of the early modern period if we're using European delineations. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in um, studies of empire, critical race studies within that sort of um, specific field. Um, I'm working on a variety of projects, including my, my monograph. Um, I can talk a little bit about that. I don't want to just be talking at you, so <laughs> stop me at any moment. Bring it on. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so my monograph is uh, tentatively titled Translating Persia in Early Modern English Writing, mm -hmm. and um, I essentially, in that project, am examining English fantasies of Persia and the literary mm -hmm. imagination. So um, English writers try to English Persia, um, so essentially translating these different texts about Persia in order to make them um, legible and accessible to English audiences. Uh, so we see a lot of translations of classical and biblical narratives that center Persia in some way, and these translations often inspired plays, uh, poetry, prose texts, um, and, and in particular, the, the sort of Persia that they're translating is from the Achaemenid dynasty or the ancient Persian empire from 550 to 330 BCE. Um, and these ideas of Persia as sort of this fallen empire um, whose time has come and gone informed the travel expeditions from um, 
these European countries, particularly England, to, to Persia. And so travelers thought they were going to find this inert empire in ruins, but actually found um, this thriving metropolis with lots of different people coming together and doing trade. And so it kind of confused them because they weren't really expecting to find that. And, um, and also finding that the Persian rulers were actually really not interested in um, doing the kind of um, collaborative work or establishing exclusive trading rights with England. And that really kind of ultimately further delayed England's um, attempts to sort of expand its mercantile and imperial reach. So that's the sort of crux of the of the argument for the for the book project. And I'm, of course, working on other things, too, but we can we can get to that a little bit later if there's time. Yeah, let's come to those later and um, um, stop and unpack where we got to. So I was going to ask you to help us understand the phrase um, transnational networks, but in a way you've already done that by getting us thinking about that really interesting clash between the English fantasizing about an ancient civilization and then discovering that there is an, an IRL real right in front of them civilization uh, with um, needs and cultures and accomplishments that the English hadn't hadn't dreamt of. So I don't know if that's an example of the transnational networks that you were talking about. Um, and then there's the, the Persian response to the English arrivals as well. So you've got these two different cultures trying to make sense of one another. Um, can we just start quickly with some really boring questions about um, dates? What sort of time period we're in here? You talked about the early modern period and you raised the issue that that is itself a kind of a European periodization, a European way of understanding time here. Um, so do you mind um, firstly giving us some sense of dates and secondly, what 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 time period does Persia think it's in when the English arrive? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I we'll go backwards. I'm I'm not really sure what Persia's thinking because I'm you know I'm really interested obviously in in Persia, but I think I'm currently interested in the fantasies that England is producing mm. about Persia, um, and and that has a lot to do with I think some of the questions that come up in the work that I'm doing right now with these English fantasies of Persia resonate with a lot of the discussions that we might be having about Iran today. And so I'm really interested in what is the genesis of this, right? How do, how do these um, perceptions and misconceptions about Iran, Persia come up? And I, I guess I'm just kind of beginning that or locating that in the early modern period. Um, but with regards to date, so the Safavi dynasty begins in 1501. Um, and goes until the the 1720s. I'm, I'm not, I can't quite access the precise date where it where it ends. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it sort of expands a little bit further than what I think we would in the early modern in early modern studies um, in in English literature kind of use as, as our, a guiding um, principle for early modern or Renaissance, though it's close. It's, I think, a little bit stretches a little bit further. Um, but it sort of seems so, it's, it starts then just after the Tudor period starts in England and lasts for twice as long as the, as the Tudor period. So it has. Right, right. Yeah. And, and what's also interesting about it, and this kind of gets at the point that you were making um, in terms of just kind of clarifying what we mean by transnational networks. I think the interesting point that you brought up has a lot to do with the temporal. And there's a lot of um, confusion about time because there's a way in which the Achaemenid Empire from 550 to 330 BC is always kind of present. And so even though England is encountering or thinking about Persia um, 
in the early modern period, it's always, there's always this sort of haunting of the ancient Persian empire, this sort of desire to um, align or connect with the principles of that empire because it was very, it was revered, but also kind of relishing in the fact that it's done and they don't have to worry about it as a competitive force. And so there's this sort of temporal and geographical complexity associated with Anglo-Persian relations. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder too if thinking of the, the current Persian Empire as the ancient Persian Empire is also a way of thinking about yourself as someone from an ancient Greek city-state taking on a kind of Herodotus-style um, set of, uh, of uh, Greek-Persian wars, but it's a way of kind of valorizing yourself as um, one, of the, one of the ancient Greek, Greek people that you've been told at university is, you know, this is, this is where culture is at, that maybe there's a way of kind of karaokeing um, the ancient Greeks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that karaoke is definitely happening with regards to Persia and English in English writing. Um, there's a lot about Persia that interests England um, as it's imagining itself as expanding its empire. Um, I mean, at the, at, the, at the core of it, my project is really arguing that we can't understand England and its imperial ambition until we understand its relationship to Persia, because in many ways it's informing its sort of agenda according to Persian principles, Persian ideals, their ideas or understandings of Persia. So when they see Persia as not, you know, the Persia that they imagined or had been reading about, it's very disorienting for the English uh, travelers and writers. So could you tell us more about that then? How is this sense of Persia fueling kind of early ideas of English imperialism? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the wide audience that you have. So I'm going to, so please stop me if something that I'm saying, because I'm so, I'm so far into it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that I'll probably um, need to, to pause at certain moments. But the, the, the starting point really is these, these classical and biblical traditions that England is translating. And the, the primary idea that kind of guides this is the way that they understand empire um, that that is mapped out in in the Bible in the Book of Daniel. So you have this process called translatio imperii, which translates to the transfer of empire. And um, this the Book of Daniel kind of describes, and I won't go into excessive detail about that story because I think it's going to take up the entire conversation if I go into much detail. But essentially, um, the Book of Daniel kind of describes that the beginning of civilization is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and that his empire will ultimately fall and there will be these successive empires that aren't so much um, empires that kind of sit side by side, but rather the next empire comes and subsumes the original empire and kind of almost elevates it or it becomes an extension of the next one. And then this kind of goes throughout history until the end of days. And England kind of imagined Persia as part of that tradition. And so they imagine themselves as in some ways indirectly and in some ways directly extending from Persia's empire, this sort of glorious past that they had. And that in many ways, um, informed how they understood themselves and what Englishness meant. Um, and, and this is sort of where the critical race studies part comes into my work, where they, they also kind of imagine themselves as a purer, whiter, um, more progressive, progressed, like kind of um, enlightened version of empire that this empire is growing and developing over time. Um, and so they 
are, you know, it's, it's very imperative then that Persia's time is over because then that means that it gives them the space to kind of now assume their um, role as the enlightened telos. Um, but of course, when they see that Persia is not really behaving mm. like a dead empire, mm. then it starts to complicate things. And we actually start seeing, um, whereas there's temporal distancing that happens in some of the earlier writings, uh, meaning really casting Persia to the past and seeing themselves as the present or the future um, for English conception, we start seeing like a browning of Persians in narratives, in travel narratives, where we start to see um, phenotypic and behavioral sort of categories that Persia Persians are assigned to, and then value judgments based on those categories. Um, so then we start seeing more of like a how we would understand race now in, in our critical studies race or critical race studies kind of frameworks. So to make sure I've understood then, um, the English are thinking of Persia before they become familiar with its contemporary uh, culture and identity. They're thinking of Persia as kind of almost like some form of, of ancestor, if not, if not literally, then conceptually. But the moment they discover that um, Persian culture not only is thriving, but it's thriving probably better than English culture, uh, it's at that moment where racial othering becomes really important to the way that the, the English are fantasizing about Persians. Have I got that right? Yeah. Um, so I asked you about dates for Persian edda. Do you mind telling us a bit more about at what point the English start to actually encounter Persian people, cultures, territory, and at what point they start to write about those encounters? Yeah, so um, the Muscovy Company is really the sort of starting point that was chartered in 1551. Um, and what we start seeing is these expeditions and in Hack Richard Hacklett's Principal Navigations is really helpful here because we get a lot of sort of extant documents that describe um, particularly Anthony Jenkinson. He was the sort of lead agent who went on these expeditions through a northern route into Russia, down the Caspian Sea, and then into Persia. Huh. Um, and so we start seeing these documents kind of come about. So um, I, I count travel literature as, as literature because, you know, these are fantasies of, of, you know, of encounters. These are sort of, you know, so that if, if we are thinking about travel literature as literature, then that's where we start seeing those writings emerge, um, you know, post-encounter um, versus the, you know, obviously classical and biblical tradition. Mm. Um, and then in, in those expeditions, extend for about 20 years um, across about six different expeditions. And each time these travelers, um, in, in the earlier ones led by Anthony Jenkinson, but these travelers are trying to create an exclusive uh, Anglo-Persian agreement because England thinks, oh, Persia is a really great place to kind of set down roots and then maybe go into other Eastern lands like India, maybe over to China. And so um, this would be a really great, fruitful place for us to kind of set up shop. But Persia is like, mm, no, we're not interested. <laughs> and, and so they just kind of keep going back to Persia and Persia is just really uninterested. And then eventually um, they divert their attention to uh, Ottoman Turkey and then um, create some negotiations there where then Persia kind of falls out of view for them for a period of time. Um, so that's sort of like the beginning of where we we start to see 
writings about Persia. We start to see actual encounters about Persia. But of course, English writers are writing about Persia um, much earlier than that, not based on their encounters, but based on what they're learning about these classical and biblical traditions. Thank you. It's really fascinating because we so often think of um, Western um, exploration in this period as being Atlantic-based. And I think if we if we thought that the uh, English would be trying to trade with anyone um, in the Middle East, it would be the Ottoman Empire first, um, just, just by pure dint of kind of geographical proximity and well-established maritime routes. And to hear you talking about routes through Russia and the Caspian Sea, routes which are still water-based, but very much going through you know, this massive landmass, um, it's really fascinating to think about these different ways in which um, trade and travel is kind of is, is being remapped through this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's just so interesting. And I, I just kind of go back to your original point about transnational networks. What I love about the work that I get to do with Persia is that it really pushes beyond our understandings of encounter as a binary system where you have two terms encountering one another. And often in a Saidian sense, you have the sort of, you know, more dominant group kind of imposing their ideas or um, desires onto the the other the other group. But in Persia, we we see more of that network. We see a lot of different kinds of people coming together. In the Safavid Empire, you had, you know, English travelers, you had um uh Italian travelers, you had Turks coming in to negotiate because the Turks and the Persians were actually really quite at odds with mm-hmm. one another. You had Russians come. So there's a lot, a lot happening mm-hmm. in this sort of in the space that kind of informs what happens outside of Persia. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's really interesting because it kind of breaks apart, you know, the maybe oversimplistic ways that we've that we tend to think about what encounter looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really fascinating. Thank you. So you've given us a sense of the Muscovy Company and um, travels happening in the wake of its formation in 1591 uh, and this idea of kind of 20 years worth of expeditions um, meeting um, meeting Persians uh, and presumably then writing back to an English audience about that experience. Does that then prompt um, further fantasies about Persia on the part of English writers? I'm thinking particularly about, for example, playwrights. Um, do these travel narratives then prompt um, less immediate, you know, non-eyewitness versions of fantasies about Persia? Yeah, absolutely. But what's so interesting is that ancient Persia is always really mm. front and center. So, for example, we see this fantasy of translation peri come up. Um, well into the 1600s, even in the 1700s, where we're seeing these sort of the, the remakings of plays or narratives about that kind of like dramatize the life of, you know, um, Darius and Cyrus and Alexander um, sort of coming in to conquer them. And so what's interesting, I mean, we, we do have some other documents too, like the travels of the three English brothers that dramatizes the Shirley brothers expedition into Persia beginning in 1598. Um, these two brothers become you know, sort of emissaries to the Persian Shah. Um, and and that that there's a, there's a play about that that dramatizes that. But but we still see this 
fantasy, right, about ancient Persia. They don't want to let go of just sort of casting Persia to the past and really trying to understand its role as this um, sort of antecedent to English ideas of of empire. Mm. Um, So even though these encounters are happening, they just can't quite shake their 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 desire to in, in obsession with ancient Persia. Yeah, thank you. That feels like a real true story with all Western encounters, really, in whatever direction they happen to go in, is des- desperately trying to read things right in front of their eyes via classical and and religious um, stories. Um, before we move on, Nader, I should um, point. I should do my job as a bit lit host here to point viewers to other materials. So actually. You and I are speaking on a day where we just published a film with um, the UK broadcaster Samira Ahmed, partly talking about her TV programme last year, The Art of Persia. Um, and because it's out today, I even know that's film 106 for anyone looking for it. Uh, and um, I'm thinking particularly about, about that film, but also the film we made with Miles Greer about how long before England had an empire, how it kept dreaming and desperately wanting such an empire. And, and you're giving, giving us an entirely new way of thinking about that kind of long history of fantasizing about an empire before it, it came along. Um, you generously said we'd also talk about other projects. So um, I'm gonna leave this with you now. We can, we can keep talking about uh, the book, which I really can't wait to read, um, but perhaps may- maybe you could bring us on to other, uh, other projects too. Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, so as I had mentioned earlier, I really am, working on a variety of, of things. Um, I'm actually working on a second book project. Mm. Uh, as we speak with Umbrian Dada Boy, uh, we're co-authoring a book called Anti-Racist Shakespeare for Cambridge University Press's Elements series, um, the Shakespeare and Pedagogy series in particular. And that's been a really great experience. Um, and, and I think that kind of ties together this other sort of aspect of, of my, my growing interests. I've always been interested in teaching. That's always actually been a really big part of who I am as an academic since graduate school. Um, and, and I, you know, it's interesting because the work that I've been doing with Persia, I never really imagined myself as a Shakespearean, at least early on, I was sort of like, I don't, really need to delve that deeply into into Shakespeare. I've got this really rich archive that I'm working in. And interestingly enough, the work that I've been doing has shown me how Shakespeare and Persia are actually in conversation and in new ways for me. And, And I think I really credit, you know, not just obviously what I've been learning when I do my own work on Persia, but also the work that I do with my students um, and talking to them about Shakespeare and um, who he is, you know, not just the the plays themselves, but also just what he represents in the academy, what he represents in the in the canon, um, the sort of whiteness that is reproduced through assigning him, through learning him, through reading him. Um, and and that's kind of opened my eyes to a, a new set of um, ideas and that are very in, in very much in the nascent stages <laughs> um, but but you know some some interesting you know translations of Shakespeare in Persian and then like references that Shakespeare makes to Persia and um, but but this project with with Umbrain is an opportunity to kind of dig more deeply into critical race studies and Shakespeare and the relationship between that those two sort of um, topics and at a time where I think people are very interested in it, but then also uh, maybe to some extent a little bit 
wary of it as well. And so um, I'm, I'm really excited to be working on that. Um, yeah, um, Anne-Marie Dadevoy, also a, um, a former a bit, a bit Litter, so I, I point uh, audiences to her film too. Um, this is a huge question, so I apologise, but what does an anti-racist Shakespeare look like? <laughs> well, you're going to have to read the book. No, just kidding. <laughs> We're trying to figure that out. No, uh, well, I think it's about, you know, being more attentive to the kind of work that Shakespeare does, right? So, um, you know, we often have been programmed to believe that race happens outside of whiteness, right? That race is what, you know, you've got white and then you've got raced people. Um, and so what critical race studies it, is, has been doing for some time is to draw attention to the fact that white is also a race, right? Um, and we have to think critically about the kind of work that that's doing. And when we don't do that, you know, we're um, doing a disservice to the study of Shakespeare. We're doing that a disservice to our students who we're teaching. Um, so we really kind of at the starting point of this book are thinking about the whiteness of, of, of Shakespeare and, and what it means to teach him in a classroom, um, what it would mean to teach him without attending to that very important, you know, um, sort of aspect about him and his work um, and, and, and what it means to kind of open the door to, to think about that. So, you know, when, when we're teaching Shakespeare and, and our students, particularly our students of color are reading these narratives um, that depict, you know, characters of color in a particular way and then are told, well, Shakespeare's universal and he talks about the human experience. What message is that sending to our students um, when we're not intervening and in, in thinking more critically about what that means, right? What does it mean that this white man wrote Othello, for example, you know, that this is really a white man's fantasy of what blackness is, right? And, and really thinking critically about that, then we're not really attending to the work that the play is doing. So an anti-racist Shakespeare would be, you know, or an anti-racist approach to reading, understanding, or teaching Shakespeare is to attend to um, the complexities of race and the different kinds of um, structures of power and domination that emerge when we when, when we're reading these materials and then to kind of you know, shine a light on that and then to get students to think more critically about these these plays to push back on mm -hmm. that sort of idea of Shakespeare's universal. Mm -hmm. Sounds fantastic. And I will do what you told me. I will go and read the book once once, <laughs> once it exists. But once it exists, um, uh, Neda, please do consider coming back to talk to us about it and, and telling us more once the, um, the book is out, because I know that our audience would love to hear, hear more. Good luck with that. It's really exciting. Um, Thank you. You mentioned tantalizingly, I think, for lots of people who will listen to this film, uh, potential links between Shakespeare and Persia. Yeah. Do you mind telling us a bit about that? Um, I don't mind telling you a little bit about that. I don't know how much I can tell you yet because <laughs> it's in the nascent stages. But um, yeah, so, you know, there, there are... Uh, Right now, I have what I, I always tell my students that when we um, when we write, sometimes we have to allow ourselves to just just kind of play with ideas and just get them on paper so that we have puzzle pieces to work with, and then we can kind of see what the larger picture is. So I think I have a few puzzle pieces and a few ideas of some puzzle pieces, but I don't yet have the full picture. And um, so you know. Um, for example, I'm really interested in the image of the Hyrcanian tiger. Hyrcania is, is a 
region in Iran. Um, and I'm interested in what is the difference between a tiger and a Herganian tiger um, for Shakespeare? Um, you know, and, and what about the classical tradition that kind of describes this image and filters its way into Shakespeare's plays? You know, what to what extent is that is that Persianness emerging? And to what extent is that um, you know is it a random a random kind of um, inclusion or is there some other kind of work being done there? So just a few questions for me about, you know, what is what is happening there? Or, um, you know, I, I found when I was researching at the at the Folger, I found this really interesting translation or adaptation really in, in Persian, in the Persian language. Um, and I want to be specific about that because I don't know that it's a Persian text, meaning I don't know that it's by an Iranian. It could just be a Persian speaking individual in let's say India or, you know, what have you. So Persia was a very um, widespread language at the time and lots of different regions would, would speak the language and write in the language in particular. Um, but this Persian language text, that's a, a sort of adaptation of the Merchant of Venice. And I'm, I'm kind of working on that a little bit and trying to make sense of that, you know, and, and this translation, this this um, this Persian text in Persian script that I found at, at the Folger Shakespeare Library. Um, you know, what is it doing there? <laughs> Why is it there? And, and learning a little bit about this um, Scottish emissary who learned Persian um, when he was working as an English um, or uh, an East India Company merchant and, you know, found this, this play and translated it and brought, brought it back to, um, to the, to, to European readers. And so it's, you know, what's going on there? Why is that happening? Um, so again, questions don't really have clear answers, but a lot of really interesting things that I'm finding and discovering in some ways by accident. Um, and I think just because of my orientations toward what I've been studying and then the work that I've been doing with my students that have kind of piqued my interest for future projects. Yeah, it sounds great. I love the idea of The Merchant of Venice with its very odd English fantasies about Venice and Jewishness then being re-fantasized into the Persian language and then brought back by a Scottish merchant. That's completely fascinating. Um, with the Hyrcanian tiger, I don't know, I don't know the full history of that, but um, and you'll know this better than I do. But there's that moment in um, Virgil where Dido, um, who is trying to found an empire in North Africa, um, for, uh, having travelled from the Middle East as a migrant, um, rounds on another migrant from the Middle East, Aeneas, on his way to found ancient Rome. And I think says that he's been brought up by a Hyrcanian tiger because of his poor dating skills. You know, because <laughs> he. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> he's been hanging out with her in a very suggestive manner and now he's he's going away uh, because he's a terrible man. Um, yeah. So there's all kinds of, um, you know, that, that reference, if Shakespeare uses it, like I said, I don't know if it's specific to Virgil or if it's a more general classical trope, but if, but if it's specific to Virgil, it could be unleashing all kinds of things about gender as well as about race and about empire. Um, and then you've mentioned the Muscovy Company as well. One of the things I'm interested in at the moment I'm working on um, animal baiting and bears in Shakespeare's time is where on earth do you get a bear if you are running an animal baiting arena in London and the Muscovy company I suspect might be one of your answers so I don't know if you could if you'd be looking to source a Hyrcanian tiger if you were running some sort of weird London animal menagerie but um, I like the fact that Hyrcanian tigers get us thinking both about those uh, Muscovy company shipping routes and about this very ancient literary tradition as well all at once. There's so much going on there, it's really rich. 
Yeah, which is why I have more questions, I think, than any of my answers. <laughs> I think, um, I, you know, when I started thinking about this project, I was like, oh, you know, I'll kind of quickly write this article up. Like, I'm sure it'll be, it'll be really like just something I can work on the side, you know, like on the weekends or something. And then the more that I would read about it and the more I realized, oh, no, I think this is going to actually be a much more involved project because like you're saying, it's touching on so many different things. And I, I think I have to discover what, I want to highlight like what actually is the story here and what's really kind of happening. And I think it's going to be important to understand. This is part of the problem with working on what I'm working on is that it's such a long, Iran has such a long history and there's so many different elements that are kind of all important at the same time. And I can't always really separate it. And so it's the minute I, I read something, I realize there's an entire history that I don't know enough about that really is actually informing that moment. So I think that what I've discovered is this reference to the Hurricanian Tiger is kind of doing that work again for me. And so I found myself at another really complex um, project, which I think is part of the fun of it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, good luck. I'm really excited to see where that project goes. I'm um, really looking forward to it. Um, Neda, we end our films by asking our contributors what the word literature means to them. And I'm realising now I forgot to warn you about this before we started filming. So um, I'll try and ask <laughs> this in a long-winded <laughs> way so you have time to think. But um, yeah, we, we're interested in knowing um, where the word literature sits in the vocabulary of the people we speak to, whether that be personally or professionally. And I guess in your case, perhaps from the point of view of the English travellers and or from the Persians that they encounter. I don't know. But yeah, what does that word mean to you? I think, um, I think the best way to maybe start thinking about that for me is, so my, my relationship to literature is informed, I think, by Iran's relationship to literature um, and, and the kind of impact that had on me as a young girl growing up um, and, and the way that my parents raised me and kind of enfolding me in Persian narrative and, and literature and story, um, not just the stories, but also talking about the power of that literature and what it does. And I think that that makes me kind of remember. So um, there's, there's this uh, English translation of one of my favorite stories that I haven't read from cover to cover because it's so long um, and in and, and poetic Persian. Um, so that's just like almost like a different language altogether. Um, but there's an English translation of Abul Ghassem Ferdosi's Shahnameh, which is roughly translated to the Book of Kings by Dick Davis. And um, this, this narrative is an epic poem from the medieval period. And um, is arguably the most important uh, piece of literature in Iranian history. And, and I think a large part of why people believe that, um, Iranian and non-Iranian, is because um, this, this piece of writing is sort of setting, setting to verse um, the oral histories and mythologies of, of Persia's past. Um, in sort of the wake of, I mean, a, a few centuries later, but but in the wake of, or as a as a response to the Arab invasion of the seventh century, that essentially erased or tried to erase our language, our history, our religion, um, and so Abu Ghassan Ferdowsi sort of setting this work down 
using Avestan, mostly Avestan Persian or our original Persian language was a way to sort of preserve that language um, in the face of this kind of um, invasion. And um, and the, the famous novelist, Ozar Nafisi, who wrote Reading Lolita in Tehran, has a foreword to this, this English translation of this poem. And her story in that foreword always really resonated with me. And the first time I read it, it kind of brought me to tears because it made me think about what I learned as a child. And she describes how her father translated or sort of made an ad- a, a, a an adapted version of this poem for a, a, a children's audience um, to make it accessible for kids. And that she um, she describes kind of sitting at her desk and seeing both Dick Davis's um, copy and her father's copy and remembering her father telling her the story that, you know, Iran has experienced so many invasions throughout all of the years that of its history. Um, and so it's it's poetry that is the guardians of of its of its history that our our the boundaries of our country have changed so much over the years, but that that is what Iranianness is. That is who we are. Um, and so for me, I feel that that's I guess the best way to think about literature, at least for me in terms of how I grew up and what I learned and why I got into this gig <laughs> um is is really because I feel that there's the power there's there's power in that um and that there's something about the human condition that we can access in these in these stories. And I think my um hope or my interest, my goal is to engage with my students in that way, to treat my scholarship in that way, and to just really kind of think about the humanity of people through these stories and and selfishly for me to learn more about my roots and my history through this work. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, I love the idea that poetry is the guardian of history. And I should say too that um, um, Samira Ahmed in that film documentary she made of the art of Persia talked about reading that poem as she as she made the film each night and how important that was to the filmmaking that they were doing. I think they were the first film company from Britain allowed into to Iran to make a full length documentary um, and how, how that, that, that poem kind of acted as a kind of key for getting mm-hmm. getting access to certain parts of, of the world that they were filming. Um, yeah. That, yeah, I think that, that resonates really beautifully. The idea of poetry is uh, the guardian of history through everything that we've discussed today. And in some ways it would be easy to think about the English fantasizing about Persia um, as a kind of anti-guardian of history, as, as something which is troubling history. But the work that you're doing also is, by giving us a history of the, of those fantasies, doing a really important job of, of clearing them away, acknowledging them, clearing them away. And as you said right at the outset, acknowledging and interrogating the way that myth-making about Iran in particular is still an issue with which we need to, to grapple. So... Um, I'm going to think too as, of your scholarship as uh, the guardian of history um, and close the film by saying cry. thank you. <laughs> oh no, don't, well, no, you're welcome to cry. I was about to give a very male response going, oh no, don't cry. Um, <laughs> crying is allowed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so very much. Your work is fascinating and I can't wait to read um, the many books which are about to come our way. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been fun chatting with you. Take care.